continuing through our study of Mark, we've just come off a, a time of some pretty amazing things. The most amazing, the culmination of it was Jesus physically raising a girl from the dead. And that being uh, in the region of Capernaum, kind of Jesus' home base of ministry, we hear now that he went away from there, chapter 6, verse 1, he went away from there and he came to his hometown, hometown being uh, Nazareth. And his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, and to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let me pray with me. Father, thank you for this, your word. May the meditations of our hearts, may my words be pleasing in your sight. Because we know that when our words and our thoughts are pleasing to you, they are best for us. We ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this seems like an odd combination of things to preach on. In one case, Jesus going back and being rejected in his hometown. And in in the other case, his disciples going out, preaching, and seeing miracles done, doing miracles themselves, and, uh, and getting a response to it. It seems upside down, inside out, doesn't it, that Jesus would have this type of cold response in his hometown and, and his disciples go out and have power to cast out demons and, and heal many who were, were sick. Of course, we know that Jesus hasn't experienced this kind of frustration throughout this time. In fact, throughout this uh, beginning of Mark, we find that Jesus has been busy establishing himself as having 
not only power to do these very things he's sending his disciples out to do, but also showing himself to, to be a teacher who teaches differently than others, a teacher with true authority, a teacher who's claiming to be able to do more than just other rabbis can do, even the wisest of rabbis, when Jesus not only heals people, but declares declares that he has authority to to forgive their sins in a way that only God can forgive sins. Mark has been concerned with the first five chapters of his gospel to, to answer this key question, who is this man who claims to be more than a man? And you may question the authenticity of Mark's words, but if you go just on the basis of Mark's words, you can't sit down and say, Jesus is just a a good teacher, or Jesus is a good moral example, without acknowledging that Jesus is declaring himself to be far more than that. Jesus is declaring himself to be God himself who has the power to forgive sins. Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah, something that will come even more into focus in chapter 8, by saying that I have the power to give life in a way that no physician can. I can raise the dead. Your physicians aren't even powerful enough to bring healing to a woman who's been bleeding for all this time, but I can do more than that. I can raise people from the dead. I can cast out demons, Jesus says. So isn't it surprising then that Jesus goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, probably it's it's physically just about 28 miles away. It's not a long journey, but it is a few days by their transit methods in the time. Goes back to his hometown. Word has gotten back to the home his hometown about what has been happening but his hometown is is dead in their faith. His hometown just rejects him. They say, how can this man be all that we hear he is? His mother and his brothers and sisters, they're they're right here. He didn't come from royal blood, at least not for a long time. Of course, he came from the blood of King David, but that was a long time ago. And now they're just... Just basic people. Jesus' father was a carpenter, and Jesus here, it says, was also a carpenter like his father. Probably for over 15 years, Jesus worked there in Nazareth as a carpenter. Perhaps he even took over his father's business because all things indicate, though it doesn't say so, that his father Joseph, or at least uh, Mary's husband Joseph, his adopted father, Jesus being the the the, the physical son of God himself, conceived by God himself in Mary with no help of Joseph. Joseph has passed away by now. He's not on the scene. Some people want to make less of a carpenter than he he really is. Carpentry in the time was a very well-respected trade. It still is a respected trade to some measure, although less so. It was... 
It was the guy who put together your house and fixed problems in your house and built furniture for the, the place and built other structures, perhaps even the synagogue in Nazareth itself Jesus had worked on. And now he was coming back and he was speaking in that very, very synagogue to a very unreceptive crowd. Now this verse, or this sentence that Jesus states seeming to refer to something else, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household is perhaps one of the most abused sentences in all of the scripture for anyone who's in ministry. The second one like it is this passage or this sentence that Jesus says, instructs his disciples afterward that if they should find a town who does not receive and does not listen to you, much like Nazareth is doing to Jesus, that they should shake the dust that is on their feet as a testimony against them. How how many times have these verses been employed by pastors who don't get a good response from their congregation, from numbers that dwindle in their congregation and they leave town in a huff, by missionaries who go to a place and they preach for a few months, sometimes even less, a few days, sometimes far more, years, and then they shake the dust off their feet as a symbol of God's judgment against that place. But I want to challenge those assumptions today and ask, is that really what the point is of Jesus making these statements in the broader context of the story that Mark is telling and also in the even broader context of God's redemptive history and the place of Nazareth and the other towns that Jesus is sending his disciples into to do this work? Because if we just read these sentences by themselves, we, we risk grossly misapplying them in our own lives. And in fact, we see this all over the place where Christians, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, well-intending, excited for the gospel to go out and tell others, apply these verses in a way that ends up being very hard-hearted, very condescending, very judgmental in a way that Jesus really doesn't demonstrate himself, much less his disciples. But you have to take the bigger picture in order to understand the specifics right here. Now, what's what's the bigger picture of this? Well, first, let's think about redemptive history as a whole. In the kids' Sunday school classes, they're studying redemptive history. What is redemptive? Redemptive history is all of the story of the Bible and God's working in people's lives. Now, the Bible zooms in on a, a fairly brief period of time in history, in particular, the time of calling Abraham to the time of Jesus coming as the Messiah 
and then his disciples and others going out to spread the good news. A period of perhaps not much more than 1,500 years. But the Bible doesn't begin with Abraham. The Bible begins with Adam. Going back all all the way to the beginning of human history. And it goes on throughout the end of time, which really is just the beginning of a new era when the new heavens and the new earth will begin. In other words, redemptive history is all of history. It's the history of God working with people through all of time. And in particular, he works in this, these 1,500 or so years with Abraham to Jesus with one central purpose in mind, and that is to bring salvation to humanity through a king who will be the deliverer of all people, and that person is Jesus. The descendant of King David, but also the son of God. God chose to use a particular family, Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, and then his 12 sons, but in particular his son Judah, all of these guys, not very good guys for the most part, very broken people, in order to make and bring salvation through this one person, Jesus, who came from that family. Now, there's a whole story of God working with this family and giving them all that they needed to not just live, but thrive, and giving them a a, a homeland, a country that was their father's country. It is what is generally known as the nation of Israel and giving them a prominent place in God's heart. That God was their God and they were His people and He kept giving them good things and the pattern was that they kept, they kept turning away from Him and looking to other nations for their security and their provision. And looking to other gods when they felt like God wasn't measuring up to their expectations. And even asking God for a human king when God said, I want to be your king, I am your king. And what's the pattern that you see over and over through this history? From Genesis 12 all the way to the time of Jesus. It is God presented as a long suffering, incredibly patient. You might even say patient to a fault, loving God and Father to this people who keep on rejecting his love. Over and over. And over and over they reject it. And God teaches them sometimes through more gentle efforts and sometimes through more harsh means. But the more harsh means even serve the purpose to bring the people 
back to God. And now into this context, Jesus comes and he sends his disciples out into the towns and the villages of this nation of Israel. With this simple message, what is the message? Repent. It seems like God is far off from you, but God has drawn near again. Repent. Make a way in your hearts for the Lord to come back in, to be active in the way you prepare your heart, the way you prepare for the arrival of a king. Metaphorically, the Old Testament speaks of it as the mountains being lowered, the valleys being raised up so that a highway can be made for God to come back into the towns, into the villages, into the people's hearts. The way they prepare is that they would repent. Jesus says to his disciples, when you go into those towns and you tell them to repent, if they don't repent, shake the dust off your feet. There was a very specific thing that he was communicating to those towns. You see, this wasn't something that Jesus made up. His disciples were doing for the first time. The Israelites knew this. When they went to a foreign country, and the foreign country rejected them, the foreign country rejected even their communicating the God of Israel was a God who loved them as well. God had instructed them, This was a cultural practice. Shake the dust off your feet. Shake the dust off of your feet. As a sign of God's judgment on those other people. And now God was showing that sign to the people of Israel. God was showing that sign to the family that he loved. That he loves. As a symbol to them that they had become like all the Gentiles that they were so critical of. That their hearts had grown cold. The sign was intended as a sign of love, just as always God's warning of pending judgment was meant to be something that woke the people up. said, you you need to do something about this. Just finishing the book that I've talked about, the Alexander Hamilton book, biography. You know, it's fascinating, of course, Alexander Hamilton, first secretary of the treasury, dies at the age of 49 in a duel with the former vice president, Aaron Burr. And this 
whole culture of dueling is so foreign to us, but it's so fascinating to hear what it was based on. In fact, theologians back in the time would write whole sections on dueling and pretty universally would call it out as a very unchristian thing to do. And Alexander Hamilton himself shot his shot in the air because he deemed it unchristian to kill another person. It's ironic that Aaron Burr, the grandson of a very famous pastor, very well-respected pastor, Jonathan Edwards, would be the one to fire the deadly shot to kill Alexander Hamilton. But one thing was interesting about the concept of dueling, the purpose of it, was that when people got offended and there was there was real conflict behind this thing and, and they, they came to the point where they were talking about shooting one another. It was like a, a wake-up call that, that heightened the senses to assess, is this really something that's worth dying over? Am I, am I going to die on this hill in today's language? Right? And, and matters of honor were tied in with legitimate uh, uh, gripes and complaints, but, but still, it was a wake-up call in the same or similar way that, that the warning of pending judgment of those who would reject God and His laws, the shaking off the dust of your feet, was intended to wake people up to get them out of their slumber. In fact, Jonathan Edwards is considered by some to be a fire and brimstone preacher because most of us have read the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in our high school days about about spiders uh, dangling over the pit of of hell uh, and and just being held on by a thin thread and that that danger of, of pending judgment that Jonathan Edwards preached. But if you read much of Jonathan Edwards, you know that he was actually a pastor of great grace and mercy. And the warning of judgment, the warning of danger, of imminent danger, could not be an, possibly be a more loving thing to do for somebody than to, to withhold, withhold from somebody a, a warning of that, that danger. I mean, imagine walking up to a dangerous cliff that's frequented by people and no one posting a sign, be careful when you get up there. You know, the comedians Penn and Teller, um, Penn is a, a noted atheist. But he said this multiple times. So I can't imagine anything more unloving for a Christian to do than not to tell me the message of salvation. How much, these are his words, not mine, how much, he says, do you have to hate a person to have the message of eternal salvation and also the warning of this judgment? How much do you have to hate a person to believe that and not tell somebody else about it. 
And in fact, that's exactly what's happening at this point in the story of Mark, is that we transition from the question of who is Jesus to the question of how is Jesus equipping his disciples, his apostles, to go out and to spread the news of this great gospel, this great salvation. And it's interesting that he starts, he starts in his hometown as if to tell his disciples, listen, not everyone is going to believe this. It's news that is too good to be true, it seems. Don't think that your rejection isn't, is the first rejection. Look at what the people who know me best do to me when I go and preach to them. And this story of Jesus in his hometown sets off a story of Jesus sending out his disciples and Jesus teaching his disciples of what they're capable of and Jesus reminding his disciples and Mark reminds them of what happened to John the Baptist who went out and preached the same message to repent and prepare the way of the Lord and he ends up with his head on a platter at the hand of King Herod. And his disciples see that the masses are coming to Jesus and, and, and they don't have anything to feed them and not once but twice Jesus shows them you have more ability to provide for them than you ever imagined you do. Don't send them away when they are hungering and thirsting for what you have. And he says, go out. And so that you know that God is going to provide everything you need, don't take anything extra for the journey. Go into a home and trust that God is going to provide for your needs, not just with bread from heaven. Today we studied in Sunday school the manna that God gave his people in the wilderness when they were wandering. It wasn't a miraculous provision that he was promising his disciples. He said, go to a home that receives you and stay there and they will provide everything you need. It is ultimately from God. But God is going to use human measures to give. Don't get greedy. Don't go to the bigger house next door when they offer to take you in. Just stay at the first place you come to. Some circles call this a person of peace who receives you. People who are more welcoming to your message. A principle for evangelism. To meet with the people who receive you. And trust that God is going to use them first. Don't constantly be looking at something else. That is called coveting. Look at what God has given you and use that to proclaim the gospel. Jesus was a prophet who was not honored in his hometown in the same way that Jeremiah before him and all the other prophets or many of the other prophets were rejected in their hometown. We shouldn't expect much less now that when we believe in Jesus, oftentimes our relatives, oftentimes our hometowns, the people who know us most will reject the faith that we have. But now listen, over time, over time, let me say it one more time, over time, 
when the people who love us and know us see the change in our lives, see that it's not just a flash in the pan, see that there is legitimate belief and more substance to this, it gives people reason to believe. Far more, far more reason, far more compelling reason than the words you initially speak. Don't stay silent. Speak the initial words. Tell them the reason for why you believe, but let that reason be girded up with evidence over years, over decades. Being patient. Looking at how God has been patient with his nation and, and remembering how God has been patient with you. With each of us. And then I want you to look at that evangelism and the role that you play and the role that the disciples play and remember something else. That God is the one who is sovereign over calling people to himself. God is the one whose spirit, he says, goes in and works inside a person's heart just as you are telling them about what you believe and showing them that you believe it through your actions. That spirit has to go into a person's life and change them from the inside out. And if that doesn't happen, all of your best words, the most compelling actions will do nothing. But as you're remembering the sovereignty of God and tempted to think, oh, I don't have to do something, or tempted to think God is somehow a stoic, mean-spirited person who hates people from the bottom of his heart and is not wounded when people reject him, come back and read this sentence Verse 6, that Jesus marveled. Jesus, the God who made heaven and earth and knew who would believe and who wouldn't believe, who knew who touched his garment and power went out from him, who knew the thoughts of people around him, who knew the condition of everyone's heart in that town and probably knew everyone by name, even without using his secret powers. He marveled. He marveled at their unbelief. He he wondered how it is possible that they could know him and everything that they had seen in his life and all of his good works. Not only was he a good carpenter, he was morally good all of his life, the scripture tells us. How could they so hard-heartedly reject him? And, And God, who is sovereign, marveled. Just as he wept at the hardness of the hearts of the people that he had poured his love into for centuries. The sovereignty of God and human responsibility are two things that seem logically impossible, and yet God says both are true, and then he adds on top of those things his heart that is a soft heart 
is patient, is long-suffering, and that is willing to die. Not at the hands of a duel, but essentially the same thing, die at the hands of those who hated him. Who had built up such animosity against him that they were willing to crucify him. And Jesus fired his shot in the air to bring peace, to end the conflict. There is power in that. But it's not a power that the world recognizes. In fact, Aaron Burr's whole life was characterized by his quest for power. But Jesus presents himself as a fulfillment of what Psalm 118 says, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it's the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Matthew and Mark and Luke and the book of Acts written by Luke and 1 Peter. Peter, by the way, is the mentor of Mark. All draw on this theme and say, have you not read the scripture that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone? And this stone, by the way, this this stone has been and will continue to be a stumbling stone for many. And that's exactly what it says in verse 3, that they took offense at him. In the Greek, they, they took scandal at him. And the Greek literally means scandal on a stumbling stone. Jesus wasn't the power person that they were expecting him to be, and he became a stumbling stone to them. He was the offense. We said last week, come to Jesus however you can, however you know. The woman who was bleeding didn't have all the proper protocol. They came to him. She came to him in probably an offensive way to everyone else around him. Let's strip away those things of the church so that we can present Jesus who is a stumbling stone in this. That Jesus says, your sin is killing you. You can't save yourself. You need me. Most will reject it. But when you accept me, I will become the the cornerstone of an amazing building that cannot be shaken. He says, you will become the building blocks, the building stones of that building. And I depend on you to be my missionaries. We're all in this together. Jesus says he is the most important thing, but he uses us in the advance of the gospel just just as he used his weak, imperfect disciples. You say, I'm not an evangelist. I say, you are. When you tell people about your favorite restaurants, your favorite sports team, your favorite book, your, your politician that you're supporting, your favorite recipe, your favorite beach, your hiking trail, whatever it is, you are an evangelist telling other people about something that's, that's good that you like. 
Jesus has called us to be his evangelists and tell others about something that we really need to like more than all those other things. But listen, you're weak like his disciples were, and over the next few weeks, Jesus is going to build you up as he built his disciples up so that you can do this. Now, he doesn't leave you on your own. He doesn't send out his disciples even on his own. He sends them out how? Two by two. And he doesn't send us out on our own. He sends us out with each other and with his spirit so that we don't go to this task alone either. A little bit long today. Amazing that you guys stuck with me. It seemed like a quiet day. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. That you are patient with us. That you have not left us alone, but given us your Holy Spirit as not just our personal therapist. but as a counselor and a strengthener, an empower, one who goes ahead of us and prepares the soil of the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. Father, may we be faithful in this calling, and when we are not, may we fall on your grace again and again, and again. Build us up into the temple of you, our living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.